right now on Matter of Fact. I would never wish to mod anybody. It's, it's a nightmare, a nightmare. America's parents are facing the unimaginable. To see your child laying there helpless. I mean, you can't do anything. Skyrocketing numbers of infants, children, and teens are falling victim to COVID-19. Seeing these children come in, seeing them die from something that's preventable is just unfathomable. How will a nation in distress confront the harshest reality? Then, a story of determination and resolve. I didn't have role models for what I was doing, to be a one-legged black girl from San Diego with no money trying to make it in ski racing. How this Olympic champion overcame some of life's biggest obstacles on her way to making history. But first, is extreme weather becoming our new normal? Supercharged storms, flash flooding from the Gulf to the Northeast, mass evacuations, immense loss. What will it take to temper the climate disasters plaguing America? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The list of climate disasters fueling America's misery index keeps growing. In the aftermath of Ida, no power, no water, no gas. Mass evacuations as raging wildfires spread in the West. Homes, farms, businesses cut off from water sources in drought-battered states. Americans from coast to coast are increasingly at risk from these supercharged weather disasters. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. suffered 22 separate billion-dollar disasters last year, shattering all records from the previous four decades. Is this a wake-up call that climate change isn't some distant threat? Craig Colton is a geography professor at Louisiana State University. He studies how communities and governments cope with coastal hazards and extreme weather. Thank you for talking with me. Uh, let's begin with how you're doing. We never lost power, although we were only a tiny little neighborhood within the city of Baton Rouge that didn't lose power. I think about half the city is still without power here in Baton Rouge. Talk to me a little bit about the impact of climate change that I think we don't necessarily focus on. The, not the drama of the flooding or the drama of the trees knocked down, but those things that follow later. And each time you encounter a disaster, you start from a little bit lower platform to start your recovery. So we were climbing multiple ladders to get out of the hole from these last several disasters. Then uh, on the other end of the coin, the recovery part of this, uh, what we'll see is, is we'll take assessments, what worked, what didn't work. You've called this the recovery curve, and it seems to me that at the end or after multiple curves, do we run out of money? Do you run out of interest in, in, in rebuilding? There is a lot of discussion in um, reformulating the National Flood Insurance Program about whether we should pay people to rebuild repeatedly after they're getting flooded. And Louisiana is one of the leading states in terms of claims for repeat floodings. And there is a, a trend towards encouraging people not to rebuild in place. Although after Katrina, something like 90% of the people who were offered federal disaster assistance to rebuild with an option to relocate or rebuild in place, 90% chose to rebuild in place. As you see, two groups of people stay the wealthiest who can endure, they can change, they can fortify their houses, they can buy up other people's property and still make a living. And the poorest stay because they don't have the resources to move. 
the middle income people, the ones more likely to move, they simply have enough money to get out uh, and, and go someplace new. Well, I'm curious what you would say about what we ought to be doing right now to be more adaptable to climate change. We need to begin thinking about that kind of weather could occur anywhere along the Gulf Coast, particularly when a hurricane comes in and stalls. But we need to be, be able to build systems that are accommodating more, and we need to think less about strong, rigid structures like levees and how we build other things that are more flexible and more resilient. So then when I tick off the list of all the things that are happening simultaneously, right? The wildfires, the flooding, the drought, all is happening at this moment. Should we expect that it's going to get worse? Or do you think that there's a way that we're gonna be able to, to fix it, make it better? I think we'll continue to see storms of increasing intensity. That's certainly the thinking of the IPCC, the big international group that's looking at this very carefully, uh, which will mean things will become uh, worse over the long haul. There are things we can do in the near term, the midterm, uh, to begin to move people to safety, safer locations. I think solving the climate change trends, the big warming trends, is going to be something that happens beyond my lifetime. Dr. Craig Colton at LSU in Baton Rouge, thank you for talking with me. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your interest in our situation. Next on Matter of Fact, while parents and policymakers face off over masks in schools, school nurses have a job to do. You just focus on the children. That's really all we can do at the end of the day. That's our job. Meet the caregivers caught in the middle of the nation's big debate. And later, Soledad's giving you a pop quiz. Name all of the Earth's oceans. We take a current look at global geography. Labor Day holiday comes to an end. Another wave of kids heads back to school and into the middle of America's mask mandate debate. The U.S. Department of Education is investigating a handful of states with rules banning universal masking. It says those bans put high-risk children in danger. Tennessee is one of those states. Republican Governor Bill Lee has ordered schools to allow parents to opt out of mask policies. Well, now the state is seeing a COVID surge with kids making up more than 35% of the cases. Shelby County, which is home to Memphis, Tennessee, is grappling with a record number of COVID hospitalizations. The Children's Hospital there says 97% of their beds are full. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, followed school nurses and frontline doctors as they struggle to treat the growing number of sick kids. I have never as a nurse lived through anything like this. Right now, it's pretty much all hands on deck. Nurse Cindy Hogg, director of community outreach for Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. The schools right now are very busy with COVID infections. I am in a supportive role and I go when I'm needed. Hey, it's Cindy with Le Bonheur. She's needed now more than ever, supporting nurses in 19 schools in West Tennessee. Can you tell me what's going on today? In Shelby County, home to Tennessee's largest school district, nearly 900 students and more than 100 employees have tested positive for COVID-19 since the beginning of the school year. 
The district, one of the few mandating masks, defying Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's controversial order allowing parents to opt out. And we just continue to make decisions best on the data. Superintendent Joris Ray. It doesn't matter about the threats and, you know, the phone calls and people showing up to my home threatening me. You know, I'm going to keep students safe. So currently we have 33 patients in, in our hospital that have COVID-19. At Labonner Children's Hospital, the surge straining staff. The Delta variant, doctors say, spreading faster among kids and hitting harder. Three children died from the virus in August. We know that there's a very small risk of death in those pediatric patients. However, a small risk is still a risk, and we're still seeing a lot more deaths from a preventable illness than we should. Labonner's emergency department is busy. Eight young COVID patients admitted here just in the last 24 hours. When we got here, there was two of us in the COVID ICU. Now the whole floor is full. Mary and Jeremy Lockhart coming out of three weeks isolated in the ICU at the bedside of their 10-year-old daughter, Isabella, who's battling COVID. The doctor came and just, he said it was very grim. And if we make it, it's going to be a miracle, basically. It was going to be a miracle because she was fighting, fighting for her life. Isabella has epilepsy, but doctors here warn many young patients now hospitalized had no pre-existing conditions. Some of these kids have been perfectly healthy. Some have had some underlying medical problems, um, but just seeing those kids come in at that age group that's right on the on the cusp of uh, vaccination being available for them um, and, and just seeing those kids come in as sick as they are has been devastating. Devastating, especially for those like Isabella's little sister, seeing her parents for the first time in three weeks and not knowing when her big sister will come home. She knows it's important to wear her mask because her sister has been sick. So, and if she can understand that, I think everybody should. In a county with a vaccination rate still below 50%, and you say, ah, it's a message. Nurse Cindy Hogg is hoping will spread faster than the virus. We just give them the facts. This is what we know. Some children will be very, very, very sick with it. The majority of children don't end up being hospitalized, but we don't know who those children are gonna be. At the end of the day, it's all about the kids and keeping them safe. In Shelby County, Tennessee, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Ahead on Matter of Fact, she made history when she medaled at the Paralympic Games, and now she's making her point. So I saw a picture on your wall. It says, normal is overrated. The whole quote is, normal is overrated, aim higher. Meet the phenomenal Bonnie St. John. And later, we'll get to the bottom of our pop quiz on oceans. O'Brien, welcome back to Matter of Fact. The 2020 Paralympic Games are coming to a close in Tokyo this weekend. Athletes from more than 160 countries have inspired the world with their strength and adaptability. 37 years ago, at the age of 19, alpine skier Bonnie St. John became the first African-American to medal at the Paralympics, winning a silver and two bronze medals. But her story doesn't end on the slopes. After graduating from Harvard, she went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, a Fortune 500 executive, and an advisor to the White House. NBC named her one of its five most inspiring women in America. 
Our correspondent, Julia Sun, got the chance to meet Bonnie at her home in upstate New York to talk about sports, determination, and resilience. When the U.S. delegation marched into the arena at the 1984 Paralympic Games in Innsbruck, Austria, nobody, including Bonnie St. John, guessed that she was about to make sports history. I'm hitting the red and the blue poles. I get to where I can see the finish line, and I think, I've made it, I've won the gold, and that's when I hit the ice. And I tried to hold on to my edge with one leg, and I fell in the snow. I was so disappointed. I thought, it's over. But my training was always to finish. I grabbed my equipment, I got over the finish line, and when the dust cleared, I was still in third place. I got to stand on the winner's podium, my mother sobbing in the snow. And in that moment, Bonnie realized how far she'd come from her childhood in San Diego. I was born with one leg shorter than the other, and I had a brace on my leg, and the other kids would tease me. When I went to the hospital to get my leg amputated at five, I thought, is my life going to be better now? How did you become a skier? Was it a hobby? Was it something you liked doing to pass time? Or you always wanted to become an Olympian? Skiing was not the go-to sport for kids in San Diego. But I got invited to go skiing with a high school friend. And I think it was really cool. You know, she she's white, I'm black. She has two legs. And yet she looked at her one-legged black friend from the wrong side of the tracks and said, hey, let's go skiing. What was the moment you said to yourself, oh, that changed my life and now I want to do it professionally? Because I had to find the special equipment and find some instruction about how does a one-legged person ski, I connected with other amputees that skied and they all raced. At that time, anyone could go to the races. So I saw a picture on your wall. It says, normal is overrated. The whole quote is, normal is overrated, aim higher. I never got to be normal. I wasn't like other kids, but I got to do exciting things, to, to go to college, to travel the world, to ski in the Paralympics. These days, Bonnie hopes to motivate people as a mentor at her executive coaching company, Blue Circle Leadership, and through her writing. Her latest book, Micro Resilience, is about small ways to bounce back. Paralympics really teaches us to be resilient. These are athletes with all kinds of disabilities. Half the time the equipment wasn't designed for your body. We learn to be resilient, to be innovative, to be able to make it work against the odds. One method Bonnie uses is what she calls a first aid kit for your attitude. Little things that help remind you of your strengths and, and pivot your attitude around. So it could be thank you notes from clients. It could be pictures of your children. One person I know has bottles of sand from different vacations they've been on. That's actually fascinating. <laughs> She's like, I'm so gonna try quick, it. Quick sand. sand, little souvenirs, anything, any little objects. Or quotes, inspiring quotes, but, but having a go-to place that's your first aid kit for your attitude. In her own kit, there's a note from her mother that says, cherish yourself. Let's say 100 years from now, some researcher is looking you up. What is the one thing you wish he or she sees first? I hope that they see that I broke through barriers and changed expectations, but then also pulled people behind me who wanted to do that for themselves. 
if the one-legged black girl from San Diego with no money and no snow can make it to become an international skier, you know, what can you do that maybe you thought you couldn't do? For Matter of Fact, I'm Julia Sun in upstate New York. Coming up on Matter of Fact, billions of dollars in rental assistance never got to distraught tenants. What happened to the money that could have saved millions of people from eviction? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a segment we'd like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. Evictions are about to restart for people behind on their rent after a Supreme Court ruling put an end to the federal eviction moratorium. Goldman Sachs estimates 750,000 renters are facing eviction. Another 3.5 million households are at risk because they're behind on rent. As for the impact on landlords, experts say unpaid rent totals nearly $17 billion. Tenants were banking on federal help to pay their back rent, but the emergency rental assistance program has failed to get funds to them. A recent report shows only 12% of the $25 billion set aside for rent assistance actually reaching struggling renters or their landlords. Unlike the stimulus checks that went directly to taxpayers, rental aid was sent to state governments for distribution. Many agencies reported being overwhelmed by applications at a time when they were already dramatically understaffed due to the pandemic. And audits reveal a slew of technical problems caused by outdated IT systems. Coming up next, how in the world could we miss an ocean? We take a deep dive and give you the answer. And finally, a pop quiz. Name all the Earth's oceans. If you said the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, Arctic, you're right and wrong. Add the Southern Ocean to the list. The National Geographic Society announced it'll recognize the Southern Ocean as its own body of water. The Southern Ocean isn't new, though. NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, has long recognized it. But the international science community didn't agree and left the ocean off of our world maps. The Southern Ocean is a workhorse connecting the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans. It helps circulate carbon dioxide, heat, and other chemicals to regulate each body of water. Scientists want to bring more attention to the area's ecosystem. The Southern Ocean is one of the most productive feeding grounds in the world. Phytoplankton, a crucial food source for animals, thrives there. And while the Southern Ocean isn't dotted with beautiful beaches, it's still a hot spot for tourists on frequent cruises to the Antarctic. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about how communities can adapt to extreme weather events, the trauma for schools, nurses, and frontline doctors caring for kids with COVID, the inspiring story of Paralympic skier Bonnie St. John, and a look at the pandemic rental assistance program that failed millions of tenants. Just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.